Our second reading, I hope, are familiar words that come to us from the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. Let us listen for and hear God's holy word. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what God has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the word spoken, but in and through your Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Amen. A few years ago, there was a small town that had a large retirement community. On Sunday mornings, the retirement center didn't hold services of its own, but encouraged residents who were able to visit one of the local congregations. As an incentive, they said that they would make the retirement center bus available to transport residents to the church of their choice. But there was a catch they would only go to one church each week. And the participants had to choose which church that would be. So the residents put their heads together and came up with a novel way to decide. Every Sunday morning, the group would get up, get dressed in their Sunday best. They'd load up on the bus and drive around town and read sermon titles posted outside the church on the marquees. Whatever church had the best sermon title was the one they attended. Well, this being a small town, a busload of seniors provided a significant boost to the worship attendance of whatever church they selected. So the word got out among the pastors that their sermon titles mattered. So there began a sort of unspoken contest between the preachers about who could come up with the most creative sermon title. Before long, the pastors were spending far more time on sermon titles than on their actual sermons, and the rivalry between the congregations began to heat up. It all came to an end one Sunday morning, however, when the residents drove past the Methodist church, whose pastor may have gone a step too far. There on the church sign, under the morning scripture reference for Mark 5, the story of the Gerasene demoniac, in big capital letters on the marquee was the sermon title, Join Us to See a Nude Dude in a Rude Mood. (laughs) At our staff meeting this past Tuesday, Mark Pace assured me that my sermon title for this morning was not going to win any contest. As he put it, why are we Presbyterian? What a snore. But maybe this Reformation Sunday, with the celebration of our 230 years as a church and our kirking of the tartan service and our stewardship dedication, I thought maybe, maybe this is the right time to look at why we choose to be Presbyterian. The short answer for me is not a profoundly theological one. Why I'm Presbyterian has little to do with ecclesiastical ties or religious convictions or anything like that. The short answer is, 
I'm Presbyterian because when I was born in April 1979, my parents were members of Celtic Cross Presbyterian Church in Citrus Heights, California. So essentially, I was born into it. Some might say that it was predestined. <laughs> There's more to it than that, of course. Growing up in the, as the good Presbyterian kid I was, I seemed to be at church every chance I had. I sang in the choir. I was a group leader in our church youth group. I went on all the mission trips. When I went off to college, I made the very mature decision that since I'd spent my childhood and my teen years going to church anytime the doors were opened, I would, like most other college-age folks, take a break. You know, sleep in on Sunday mornings and enjoy my Wednesday nights uh, with friends and not have to think about God while I was enjoying the revelries of the college life. And it was going great. That is until about six weeks in, when I stopped and realized that somehow in my non-church fun I was enjoying, I'd agreed to take a position as the youth director of San Leandro Presbyterian Church. I'd become very involved in the Focus College student group at First Presbyterian Church in Berkeley, and I'd agreed somehow to serve all summer as a counselor at Westminster Woods Presbyterian Summer Camp. Now that I think about it, maybe I'm Presbyterian's because I'm just not good at not being Presbyterian. Now, I know a lot of you can trace your Presbyterian roots back for generations. And for some of you, those many generations trace way back in the membership of this congregation. Some of you can go back even further, all the way to Scotland. Not me. I've searched and searched in my family tree, and yeah, there are some Presbyterians sprinkled here and there, but I've found Methodists and Lutherans and Roman Catholics, and I've got a lot of relatives with absolutely no religious affiliation at all, but there aren't many Presbyterians in the bunch. I can joke that I'm bad at not being Presbyterian, and the whole thing for me was predestined, but in all honesty, it's a choice. And I think it's a distinct choice for each one of us. There are things about each denomination that sets them all apart. Like Methodists are Methodist because they follow John Wesley's theological method. Episcopalians are Episcopalian because the word Episcopal means bishop. Lutherans are Lutheran because of Martin Luther. Baptists are called Baptists, well, for obvious reasons. And we are Presbyterian because we believe in a Presbyterian way of doing things, which is through an elected representative democracy. In fact, the Greek word which comes directly from the Bible is presbyteros, presbyters. Today, we call them elders. All of this denominational stuff made sense maybe a generation ago, but today we live in what sociologists of religion are calling a post-denominational age. We know for a fact that the American people don't care that much about brand names anymore when it comes to churches. The truth is, people choose a congregation today for all sorts of reasons. If you move to a new community, you look for a church that has programs for your kids, or a church that has an excellent music program, or active outreach programs, or beautiful architecture, or a good preacher, or lots of parking. 
almost no one chooses a church out of brand loyalty anymore. So what does it mean to be Presbyterian in 2022? As I mentioned a couple of times already, it's Reformation Sunday, which started 503 years ago. 503 years ago tomorrow, to be exact. Because on October 31st, 1517, a Catholic monk named Martin Luther marched his way up to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, and nailed his 95 theses to the door. He wasn't trying to start a revolution. It's just that the door of the castle church was the community bulletin board. And Luther was simply trying to raise some questions and concerns that he saw in the Catholic church. But he struck a nerve and the Protestant Reformation exploded. By grace, you've been saved through faith, Paul says. And this is not of your own doing, it's a gift of God. It was on those words that Luther hung the whole of the Protestant Reformation. Solo gratia, solo fide, grace alone, faith alone. You're not saved by good works. You're not saved by penance. You're not saved by the purchase of indulgences or by membership in a church. You're not saved because a priest tells you you are or because you happen to be born to a certain family or nationality or church tradition. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Those eight words are the foundation of all Reformed theology. And by the middle of the 16th century, the Reformation made its way to Switzerland with a French lawyer named John Calvin. Calvin settled in Geneva, where he was pastor, teacher, philosopher, and eventually the author of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, considered the most important work in Reformed theology ever published. And in his day, Calvin was a radical. He had already been run out of France as a political refugee. And it's truly a sign of Swiss neutrality and tolerance that he wasn't run out of there too. Calvin had some revolutionary ideas about human freedom for the 16th century. For instance, he said individuals ought to have the right to participate in their own governance. They ought to be able to elect pastors and leaders in the church and government officials in the city and the state. Given our history, that seems like a little thing to us. But in Calvin's day, the assumption was that the rulers in both church and state had been set in place by God, endowed with God's authority and power. To say otherwise, to suggest that the king did not have a divine right to rule, or that perhaps the pope was not God's right-hand man here on earth, sounded a lot like heresy and treason, because it was. So Calvinism became the seedbed for democracy, individuals blessed with the right to choose their own leaders. And if that sounds a lot like the U.S. Constitution, it should. The framers of our Constitution were largely Presbyterian, many of them doing double duty at the, at the Continental Congress and the first General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in 1789. Down at one end of the street, Congress was ensuring the constitutional right of the people to govern themselves, while on the other end, 
they were meeting as, with the General Assembly affirming that Presbyterians would always be able to elect their own elders and call and install their own pastors, that no candidate whom the bishop appointed or minister whom the district superintendent sends was forced on a church. The Presbyterians even took it one step further. Because the citizens were to be responsible for their own political and ecclesiastical lives, education had to be a priority. Public schools, public education, the responsibility of the entire community to educate its children, all of these were Presbyterian ideas. Everywhere the Presbyterians went, they built schools. Most of you know the story of Blunt College, now the University of Tennessee, which was started by Samuel Carrick, the first pastor of this church. And it's a similar story just down the road from us at Maryville College, established as the Southern and Western Theological Seminary to train ministers all the way out here on the frontier. And there are Presbyterian fingerprints on all sorts of other schools, places that you might never expect, like the University of Michigan, Princeton University, the University of North Carolina, Ohio State University, the University of Georgia, and even my alma mater, the University of California, all of them organized by Presbyterian clergy and lay people. And Presbyterians believed that education was not just for the privileged few, but for everyone. The end of the Civil War meant that there were several million newly emancipated slaves in this country, most of them unskilled and illiterate. The most urgent need after food and shelter was education. The Presbyterians set to work. More than 120 elementary schools, secondary schools, junior colleges, and colleges were created to provide basic education to the children of freed slaves. Most of the schools were eventually absorbed into public school systems, but a few remained active for many, many years, notably Knox College, Knoxville College, which is right here in our own backyard. Think, the Presbyterians have always said. Think. Think about what you believe and then think about what difference it makes in how you live. The Presbyterian church has always believed that the place of religion is not just in the sanctuary, but on the streets. That's what we profess on Sunday, that what we profess on Sunday morning ought to affect what we do on Monday morning and Wednesday afternoon and sometime next Saturday. For we are what God has made us, Paul says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. John Mulder, the former president of Louisville Seminary, used to laugh and say that Presbyterians have always just assumed that they're responsible for the entire world, even when the world would sometimes prefer we would mind our own business. We are Presbyterian because what we believe matters not only in the sanctuary, but in the boardroom, in the classroom, in the dining room, and every single day of our lives. So why are we Presbyterian? Because deep in the heart of Presbyterianism is an acknowledgement since that 
since God alone is sovereign, since God alone is ultimate, nothing else and no one else is. We are finite. We're limited, flawed human beings, and even our best ideas, rules, and structures are flawed as well. There's a humility that comes with that, an acknowledgement that our best decisions are always open to reconsideration and revision. Ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda. That's how the constitution of the Presbyterian church states it. The church reformed and always being reformed. The church reformed and always willing to be reformed. On this day, that's exactly what we celebrate, that God is at work among us, reforming us, changing us, stretching us, that our heritage gives us freedom and not fences, that within our tradition, within this church, there's no limit to where God will take us or what God will do with us or how God will surprise us. I believe that God is doing a new thing with the big C, capital C church, Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, Lutheran, and these institutions, which have been around for over 500 years, are changing before our very eyes. I believe God is on the verge of creating something new, a new church for a new age. And the challenge is for the mainline church in this country, the old denominations like ours, the challenge is to keep up. God is doing a new thing with the church. And God is calling us to be fluid and flexible, loose, responsive, to be watchful and ready. And I think maybe we Presbyterians are genetically wired to do just that. Ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda. I think it's part of our DNA, reformed and always willing to be reformed. All around us this morning are signs of our past. Bagpipes, tartans, the stained glass, Jehovah Jireh scripted above us, and the memories of all the saints who've helped to make us exactly who we are. We are remembering who we are and where we've been. But I also think about Neil Armstrong, who in 1969 became the first person to walk on the moon opening to us a whole new frontier. But what most of us don't know is that pinned inside his flight suit was a piece of the tartan of the Armstrong clan, which marked the connection between a rich heritage and an ever-expanding future. Just as Armstrong did that day all those years ago, we're also doing here today, right now, remembering where we've been and celebrating where God is taking us. Ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda, the church reformed and always willing to be reformed. May it ever be so. Amen.